Amen. And as you're being seated, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles again to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This morning we're going to continue our series entitled, While We Wait, from this second letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonian believers. And as we go through this letter, we're asking ourselves, how can we live out the Christian life day to day while we wait for the return of Christ? How do we do that? What does that look like? Two weeks ago we said that, that one of the things we need to do to live out that Christian life is to prepare for persecution. That what the Bible tells us is that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that, that you will ultimately at some point in some way be persecuted. That's the rule. Now, we, we talked about the exception to the rule. There are exceptions to that. And, and, and the history of this nation has been one large exception to that rule. But nonetheless, we need to prepare for persecution. Last week, Paul showed us how we should think about the second coming of Christ in light of the fact that it's been 2,000 years since he promised to return. This morning, we're going to look at how to be well prepared while we wait. Not, not so much in light of, of Christ's return and the wait that we are in, but in terms of the day-to-day struggles of life. You, know, you might have all the I's dotted and all the T's crossed regarding the, the coming of Christ. You might understand the issues that are involved there and you're, you're okay with that and that, that's fine, but it's still sometimes a struggle to get from day to day in this fallen world. So let's see what Paul has to say, beginning in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to concentrate on verses 13 through 17, but let's back up to verse 9. We're going to overlap with something that we, we studied last week, because in verse 13, Paul makes a contrast between the people in verses 9 through 12. So I want us to kind of put it in context. Looking at verse 9, Paul says this, The coming of the lawless one, and we saw that that was a reference to the Antichrist, will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And I just want you to understand that people perish People fail to have eternal life. People come under condemnation because they do not love the truth. They do not accept the truth that God has given us. Verse 11, for this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Now, verse 13, but... We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits. Better translation would be this. God chose you from the beginning to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teaching we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God, may the Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who loved us and by His grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Father, we thank you for your word and do pray this morning that you would encourage our hearts through the truth of it and that we would find strength. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Let me ask you a question. How many of you, when you're on your way to work in the morning or you're, you're on your way to the grocery store, drive something like this? Sometimes you would like to drive something like this, right, when you're out in traffic. But, but how many of you, you know, actually have to get out when, you, when you're on your way to work and you have to drive in something like this? Not many of us, right? How many of you, when you're, you, you want to get out and you want to stretch your legs, you're at work and, and you want to get out and kind of take a breather and you, you, you need to just take a few minutes off and kind of get out and get some fresh air? How many of you have to do it like this and you look like that, Right? We don't, do we? None none of us look that way. What's the difference between those guys and their situation and our situation? Well, simple. They're in a combat zone. And that means getting around from place to place and, and doing the job that they've been called to do. It makes it difficult, right, when you're on the enemy's turf and when your enemy is out to get you. You have to be well prepared if you're going to function in that kind of environment. Well, this morning, I want to submit to you that that that's what makes the Christian life so difficult in this fallen world. We are on the enemy's turf. The Bible makes it clear that this world is not our home. The Bible tells us that we are soldiers in a spiritual battle and that we need the armor of God. The Bible tells us that we have an enemy who is out to get us and who is targeting us. In fact, last week we saw in verses 9-12 through that what Satan plans to do in the end times, that is, use deception as a weapon of spiritual warfare, what he plans to do then, he is already doing now in this world. And here's what that means for you and me. Getting from day to day in the Christian life can sometimes be a struggle. We struggle with fear. We struggle with doubt. We struggle with temptation and discouragement and opposition. And like the soldiers that we just saw, who are doing what they were called to do while they wait to go home. And what a picture that is of the Christian life. Like the soldiers that we just saw, we need to be well prepared while we go through our tour of duty on this earth, because if we are not, we will experience spiritual damage in this life. So the question is this, how can we be well prepared? Well, look at what Paul said to these Thessalonian believers. Look at how he contrasts them with those who are deceived and who turn away from the truth in verses 9-12. through He says, we thank God that that's not you. These people turned away from the truth, and as a result, they are condemned. But listen, that's not you, folks, and we are grateful. He says, I thank God for your salvation, which leads us to the first step we need to take if we're going to be well prepared to live out the Christian life in this world, and that is this, rest in God's salvation. Rest in God's salvation. You know, it's no mistake that Paul brings that up at this point. These believers in Thessalonica have been shaken, not only by the false teaching that they were introduced to, as we saw, but also because of the persecution that they have had to endure and that they've suffered. And so Paul comes back to the very foundation of the Christian life. He comes back to that which is most real in the Christian life, and that is salvation. Our relationship with God is what gives us stability in this fallen world. So let's look at how Paul describes salvation. He gives us a little bit of an anatomy of salvation here. 
He says, first of all, we ought to thank God for you. Why? Because God chose you as first fruits. That word chose, that verb, is in the past tense. In fact, in the Greek, it's in what's called the aorist tense, which means it's not only in the past, but it's something that happened at a particular moment in the past. So at some decisive point in the past, God chose those who would be saved. Paul then says he chose you as first fruits, or as I've already said, a better translation, probably most of the translations that you're reading, if it's not the one I'm reading, says he chose you from the beginning. God, at some decisive point, chose us from the beginning. This sounds very much like what Paul wrote to the Ephesian believers. You remember in Ephesians chapter 1, look in your notes. Verse 4, For He chose us in Him, meaning in Christ, before the creation of the world. That sounds very much like He chose us from the beginning. Here's my point. God took the initiative in our salvation. Now, if if you want to go into this a little deeper, I preached on this in more detail, this whole idea of election and predestination a couple of weeks ago in a sermon entitled Salvation and the Glory of God. Go to our website and you can find it there and you can listen to it if you want to go into this more detail. I don't have time this morning to go into more detail, but I want you to understand the point. God took the initiative in our salvation. And any understanding that we have of salvation and what it means to be saved must start here with the sovereign choice of God. And having chosen us, it says that He then called us to salvation. Notice that these are the only two verbs used in this clause where, where Paul is talking about salvation. The only two verbs are chose and called, and they both refer to what God did for us. In verse 13, He chose you. In verse 14, He called you. And notice also in verse 14, how He calls us to salvation. Through what means does He call us? It's the proclamation of the gospel. He said He called you through our gospel. But this calling that God issues to those He has chosen isn't just the general calling of salvation that that is present every time the gospel is preached. Every time the gospel is preached, there is a general call that goes out to anyone who hears it. The Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that general call goes out to everybody. But this is a particular calling to those whom God has chosen that results in their coming to faith in Him. Wayne Grudem, in his book entitled Christian Beliefs, 20 Basics Every Christian Should Know, says this about the calling of God. I put this quote in your notes. This kind of calling is a summons from the king of the universe. It is a summons that cannot be denied, and it brings about the desired response in people's hearts. This calling is an act of God the Father speaking through the human proclamation of the gospel in which he summons people to himself in such a way that they respond in saving faith. It's what theologians call an effectual calling, meaning that when God issues this calling, people will respond. That's why Paul could say this in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Look in your notes there. And those he predestined, just another word for chose, those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. What does justified mean? It means he saved them. He declared them righteous. He made them right with himself. And those he justified, he also glorified. 
So those that God issues this call to respond in faith and are justified. By the way, I hope that you see from this that it is not your job and it is not my job to convince anybody of the truth of the gospel. It's not our job. Listen, it is our job to proclaim the truth of the gospel. It is our job, every one of us, to bear witness to the truth of the gospel. But it is God's job to bring about conviction and faith in the lives of those who hear it. It is His job. Please don't ever think that you've got to convince somebody of the truth of the gospel. That somehow you've got to be clever enough or logical enough or something in order so that you can convince them of the truth. You bear witness to what God says and you let Him do the rest. And listen, God can, can reach the hardest heart. He can penetrate the hardest heart. And don't ever think, oh, well, you know, there's this person I know, but I would never really share the gospel with them because they are just so hard-hearted. I mean, they just are, are anti-God to the core of their being. And they make it very clear. And, and so, I, you know, what's the point of me telling them about Jesus? Because they're just going to reject it anyway. No, no, no. God can penetrate the hardest heart. God can reach that one who is, is, is devoted, deeply devoted to the claims of another religion. You might think, well, I, I wouldn't share the gospel with somebody who's a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or a Muslim or a Hare Krishna because, you know, they, they're so convinced of, of what they believe and they're so deeply devoted to it. I would never share the gospel with it. No, listen, God can reach anyone. Do your part. Share the gospel, even if it's just reading a track. You may say to yourself, well, I, I, you know, I would, but I'm not sure exactly what to say or how to quite phrase it. Listen, we have tracks in the back. Grab one. Take it with you. And when you have the opportunity, just say, well, let me show you what, 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 uh, what I've come to understand to be true about the Bible and what it teaches about how we can have a relationship with God. Just read it to them. Read it. And let God do His part as He chooses in their lives. I want you to see that there's one other thing that God does in our salvation that Paul mentions here. Notice he says that you are saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That word sanctified literally means to be set apart to God for holiness. Alright? So those who are sanctified are made holy. You follow me? Those who are sanctified, that word means to be holy or to be made holy. And there's two aspects in which we are made holy as believers. First, when we are saved, we are, now listen to this word, we are declared holy by God. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, He took upon Himself the weight of our guilt and sin so that when we put our faith in Him, God transfers to our lives the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. So not only are we forgiven, but we are declared holy so that when God looks at us, what He sees in us is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Our status before God, our standing before God, changes in that moment by His declaration. We are declared holy. By the way, that's why believers are called saints. That word saint is from the same root word as the word sanctified. They both mean holy. And so believers are called saints. 
Not because we've earned it, but because God has declared us holy. If you're a believer, you are a saint. You don't become a saint by living a really, really good life and earning the title of saint. You are a saint because God has said you are a saint. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul writes this, To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified, those declared holy in Christ Jesus, and called to be His holy people. Some translations read that, and called to be saints. But listen, being sanctified isn't just about our standing before God. It's not just about being declared holy. It is also about our situation in the world. When God declares us holy, He also frees us from the power of sin in our lives and calls us to live as holy people. And so the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to make us, to enable us to live more and more in the holiness that God has called us to live in. Does that make sense? We are sanctified when we are saved, we are declared holy, and we are being sanctified as we live out the Christian life. We are being made holy. And so day to day, we become in our actions what God has declared us to be. This is what God has done for us. But listen, I don't want you to think that because God chose you and because... God sanctified you because God called you. That your role in salvation is just passive. You know, God's doing all the work, so I'm just going to sit back and I don't really have a, a part to play in this. No, 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 no. In fact, if you're a believer, you know very well that you had a very active role. Right? Having heard the gospel, having heard the truth, having been convicted by it and convinced of the truth of the gospel, you personally received Jesus Christ as your Savior. You put your faith in Him. There's nothing passive about that. That's a very active response on your part. The people in verses 9 through 12, they actively rejected the truth of the gospel. And you've actively received it. That's your active role in salvation, receiving the truth when God issues that call in your life. But I want you to understand something in light of that. Coming to church isn't enough. Growing up in a Christian home isn't enough. Being religious isn't enough. Hanging out with Christians in the youth group isn't enough. Even believing that Jesus was real and that He died on the cross, believing that to be a, a true fact isn't enough. Believing the truth means accepting the truth of the gospel. And everything that it says about who God is and about who you are and how to have a re right relationship with Him. That's what it means to believe the truth, that you accept for yourself personally and apply to your life through faith the truth of the gospel. And here's the encouraging part. Having done that, you are forever saved. When God chooses you and calls you so that you respond in faith and He declares you holy, those are forever things. They never change. And what's the point of all of this? What's the point of God's choosing and calling and, and sanctifying us? What's the point of all of this? Well, look, Paul says that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The goal of salvation is always relational, to restore our relationship with God. That's the goal of salvation. 
to restore a relationship with God. And that happens at the moment you put your faith in Christ. It begins at that moment. But we will someday and forever enjoy a full fellowship with Christ when we share in His splendor and glory. A clear reference to heaven. When we see Him face to face, we will enjoy a full, unending fellowship with Him. That's what awaits at the end of the journey for every believer. Now, put that whole package together. That's what we call salvation. From God choosing you from the very beginning to a forever life spent with Christ in the splendor of His glory and everything in between is salvation. That is the secure and solid foundation on which we stand when the junk of life and the attacks of the enemy come against us. That never changes. No matter what else might be true in your life, you are secure in your relationship with God. Not because we chose Him, but because He first chose us and called us and sanctified us and is making us holy and will one day take us home. There's hope in that when life gets rough. There's hope in that reality. There's hope in that security. That is the foundation on which we stand in this life. And that's why Paul said this in Romans chapter 8. If it is God for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. It is God who saves. It is God who declares a person righteous. It is God who says, this person is in a right relationship with me. Who then is the one who condemns? Paul says, no one. So we will be well prepared for whatever life throws at us if we rest in the security of God's salvation. Second, to be well prepared in this life, to go through the day-to-day struggles of this Christian life. Number two, stand firm in God's Word. Stand firm in God's Word. In verse 15, Paul calls the Thessalonians and every, and to stand firm and hold fast to the teaching that we passed on to you. And that applies to us as well, right? And what is the teaching that Paul passed on that we have? Well, most of our New Testament uh, is, is made up of the letters that Paul wrote to the churches and to individuals. That is the teaching that he's passed on. So why is God's Word so vital? Why is it so important that we hold fast to it, that we cling to it, the way he says here? Because truth is the rudder that keeps us on course when we're in dangerous waters. Morally, spiritually, and theologically. Truth is the rudder that keeps us on course. If we don't have that, if we don't have the truth of God's Word guiding us, then we are easily blown off course. This past March, a sailor died and five others had to be rescued off the coast of California because their boat lost its rudder. Let me read to you just a bit of this story from the USA Today. Storm-churned seas during a sailing race off of Southern California smashed a boat into Island Rocks. 
leaving one sailor dead after the vessel's crew first sent a mayday call, but later waved off help from the Coast Guard and other boaters. Five other crew members of the uncontrollable urge were rescued after the 32-foot sailboat lost its steering and the craft became, uh, began drifting towards San Clement Island where it broke apart. Storm conditions in the open seas caused equipment failure for two other boats, forcing their crews to drop from the race. The uncontrollable urge crew radioed that the boat's rudder failed. The death came nearly a year after four sailors died when their yacht crashed during a race from Southern California to Mexico. That same month, five other sailors died in the waters of Northern California when their 38-foot yacht was hit by powerful waves and smashed into rocks and capsized during a race. Wow, what a picture that is of the Christian life. Stormy seas certainly are, is an apt metaphor for the moral and spiritual condition of our fallen world. And without the truth of God's Word applied to our lives, not just knowing it, not just hearing it, not just coming on Sunday and hearing it preached, but the truth of God's Word applied to our lives, without that, we are subject to be tossed against the rocks and find ourselves badly damaged in this world. I wonder how many lives have been ruined because people have failed to listen to and to obey and to follow the truth of God's Word. I wonder how many marriages have been wrecked because people failed to, to honor and follow the wisdom of God's Word. I wonder how many churches have been damaged because church leaders and church members have ignored the principles of God's Word. Listen, you can treat this book like it's just some good advice when you're in a jam. Or you can treat it, you know, and use it to, to help you live a more positive and prosperous life. But I wouldn't recommend it. This is not a self-help book. This is the revelation of God Himself to us. And its purpose is to mold us and to shape us into the character of Christ as we apply it to our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. You cannot be well prepared to live as a Christian in this world if you don't stand firm in God's Word. You can't. You're like a ship without a rudder. You'll just be tossed all over the place, morally, spiritually, theologically. Stand firm in the Word of God. But there's one more thing you need to do to be well prepared, and that's live strong in God's strength. Live strong in God's strength. Look at verses 16 and 17. They're a benediction. It's Paul's prayer for the Thessalonian believers. And in this prayer... He prays that God would encourage them and strengthen them as they go through this persecution. And isn't that what we need to get from day to day? Are there not days when you just don't have what it takes? You don't have to raise your hand or nod your head or anything, but I know it's true <laughs> if you're a human being. There are days when you just, you just don't have what it takes emotionally, spiritually, physically, to do what God has called you to do. To get from point A to point B in your life. What do you do on those days? You rely on God. You rely on His strength. You trust in Him. Now, listen, He may not change anything about your situation. He may not change anything about your circumstances. But I'll tell you what, He will give you what you need to go through it if you lean on Him. He will give you what you need. How do I know that? I don't say that under my own authority. I say that by the authority of God's Word. Look at verse 16. What does Paul say? He loves us. 
He loves us. In fact, he, he loved us enough to sacrifice what was most precious to him so that we could be saved. He loves us. Look again at verse 16. He extended his grace to us and gave us the hope of an eternity with him even though we don't deserve it. Listen, that's someone you can lean on. That's someone you can trust in. That's someone you can rely on. Jeremiah the prophet summed it up well. Famous verse, and there's a famous hymn that comes from this verse. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is His faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. You don't have to rely on yesterday's mercy to get through today. Every day, God will give you what you need. Live strong in this rotten, fallen world, not in your own strength, but in His strength. And let me tell you something, you can only do that if you know Him as your Savior. You can only live strong in the strength of God if you are walking in a relationship with Him. What Paul says here in verses 16 and 17 about the encouragement and strength of God are dependent upon what he says in verse 13 and 14 about salvation. It's only when you respond to that call of God in your life and you respond by putting your faith in Jesus Christ that you enter into that relationship in which the encouragement and strength of God through His Holy Spirit are made available to you. So my question for you this morning is this. If you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, is God calling you this morning? Well, how do I know? Well, you know. If the truth of this book is beginning to bring about some conviction in your, your heart and mind, about your own sinful condition, about the fact that there is nothing you can do to make yourself right with God, about the fact that, 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 that no matter how hard you try, no matter how good you try to be, you don't even live up to your own standards, much less His standards. If the truth of this Word is bringing conviction about your need for a Savior to be made right with God, then let me tell you something. God is calling you to salvation. And your job is to actively respond by accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior. Just humbling yourself before Him. Let go of any effort, any notion that you have something to bring in exchange for that salvation. Just let it go and come to Him empty-handed, relying wholly on His mercy and grace. If that's you this morning, if you say, you know what, God is calling me and I'm ready to respond, then I'm ready to help you. And I want to lead you just in a, a short prayer this morning. So I'm going to ask everybody just to bow your heads for a moment. I don't know what God's doing in your heart, but perhaps there's someone here this morning that says, yeah, that's me, and I'm ready. Offer a prayer to Him that sounds something like this, but from your own heart, make them your own words. Just from your heart to His, say something like, Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've done things that are wrong. But I know that Jesus Christ died for me. And I believe that if I put my trust in Him, you will save me. 
So this morning, the best I know how, I put my faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you for forgiving my sins. Thank you for making me your child forever. And teach me to live like you called me to live. In Jesus' name.